The Inventive Podcast, mixing engineering fact and fiction. Inventive. 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 With Trevor Cox, Professor of Acoustic Engineering at the University of Salford. Welcome to Inventive, the podcast where we mix an interview with an engineer with a piece of fiction inspired by that engineer's story. But this is a special edition with a couple of twists. First, I know the author. It's my brother, science fiction writer Stephen Cox, who has written a story entitled The Magic Flute. And the second difference? This time the tables have been turned on me. I'm not the one doing the interview, I'm the engineer. And I'm in the hot seat. Inventive. So let's start off with the easy one. Um, So you're an acoustic engineer. Can you explain what acoustics is? Yeah, it's a really common misconception. I've, I have nothing to do with guitars at all. You may be disappointed to know. Uh, so acoustics is the science of sound. And so I'm an engineer who works in sound. And you know, sound is all around us. So I work in a huge diversity of things. So it could be hearing aids on face masks and got involved in product design, you know, mundane things like kettles and washing machines the sounds of cities, all sorts of kind of different things because sound is everywhere. So wherever there's sound, there is research and engineering to be done. So it's a really diverse field. And how do you go from studying physics to the acoustics? Yeah, I, I don't, didn't have a grand plan. I didn't have an epiphany, I'm afraid. So I was good at science at school, so I went and did physics and was good at that. But I was also always a musician. So both my parents are musicians as well. So I've always played instruments. And it kind of acoustics combines those interests. And yes, that is me on the saxophone. Now, if you've listened to Inventive before, you may recognise the interviewer. It's Ruth Amos. She was a previous guest and she's just been announced as one of the top 50 women engineers in the UK. She also co-hosts the YouTube channel Kids Invent Stuff. And here she is describing this from episode six. Every month we bring to life a different kids' invention idea. So it could be a fire and water shooting piano or a furry electric dog car or a popcorn firing doorbell. And they are all inventions designed by four to 11 year olds. Um, And they send them in on our website as pictures or videos. And then we film ourselves bringing them to life and testing them in crazy ways. Inventive. And so in this first post-lockdown inventive, I have the pleasure of taking Ruth on location, a tour around my place of work, the acoustic laboratories at the University of Salford. The acoustic doors, they're heavy. Yeah, it's an amazing space. Cool. I'm really excited for all the different spaces. Um, Sound is something that I'm always fascinated by. So there's something funny about sound, that it's kind of ubiquitous, it's everywhere, and yet it's kind of ignored a lot of the time. It's invisible, we don't see it. But when it's wrong, we notice it. So First, I took Ruth to an extreme acoustic, a reverberation chamber, which is a great place to play the saxophone in, as long as you pick the piece of music carefully. I want to go in first. Oh, I can already hear the echoes. We're not, I don't know if we're going to record them because they're busy. Ooh. But, um, yeah, <laughs> now this is echoey. Yeah. Amazing. So there's lots of interesting rigs around. What would you use this space for? Well, probably the more mundane thing in the corner is a waste pipe for a washing machine. <laughs> so one thing we might test in here is domestic appliances. And so 
we all know things like kettles and washing machines and lawnmowers are all really noisy, so they're regulated how noisy they can be. And they have to be measured in a defined space to a standard. So the room just looks like a normal room. How is it so echoey? So it's not, in engineering terms, very complicated. So in a room, you lose sound every time the sound bounces off the wall. So if you make the walls very reflective, the sound doesn't get lost and it keeps going around and around the space. So it's the paint? Heavy bricks, concrete, very thick, and gloss paint. Yeah, it's making me realise um, when I was buying a house, someone had lost their walls. Maybe that was the reason I didn't want to buy that house. One thing we're doing is talking to each other differently. So I'm already talking slower because I know when I bring people in here, if I don't talk slower, they haven't got a hope. All adapt. We do this when we go to a restaurant and it's noisy. We have what's called the Lombard effect, which is how we speak differently when it's difficult to communicate. I'm aware that you don't want to record loads of here, so I'm guessing this is not going to be... Well, I hope this one. We were talking quite... I mean, it, does, it is intelligible, but you don't want to play too yeah. much. Oh, it's nice to be outside. Oh. Let me take you to an anechoic chamber. So this is the other sort of extreme of acoustic we work in a lot. The sound, the weird things that it does to the sound in here. We've all gone very reverently quiet, haven't we? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so what you're looking at is those grey wedges and they're on the ceiling, the walls. Giant spikes of foam. (laughs) And they're also on the floor. We have a net on top so you can't see it, but the same thing's on the floor as well. So this is a full anechoic. I can illustrate what the foam is doing because I can turn away from the microphone and turn away from you Ruth and talk in the other direction and you'll hear it's a lot quieter because basically the sound has to go around my head and what these foam wedges do is just absorb sound so as as I talk to you now the only sound you're getting is direct from me and anything that's coming off the walls is missing this room you can't hear the walls but you can see them nothing is behaving as it should do so it's when I hear you speak I it's muffled. When I speak, I can hear it in my head slightly more, probably, because there's there's nothing else to distract me. That's the sound I can hear. So when we're listening, when you're listening to yourself, you've got two ways of listening to your voice. So one way is airborne. So out of your mouth, round the side of your head, in your ear. But there's also a bone conduction route. The vibrations that your voice in your larynx is creating is vibrating through the soft tissue in your head and getting to the inner ear by a different route. And that's the reason when you listen to a recording of your voice, people go, oh, I don't like that. Loads of people don't like the sound of their own voice, do they? <laughs> and that's because the sound of your own voice is actually two things. It's a, it's a structure-borne path through the body and an airborne path. And you're hearing a combination of those two. And when you listen to your own voice or recording, you're just hearing the airborne path and it doesn't sound the same. And playing in here is really odd. Because you play... And you're listening and it doesn't sound right. So you play a bit louder and it, it's, the tone goes. So it's actually quite hard playing in here.
Famously, John Cage, the composer who did that famous silent work, went into the Harvard anechoic and he heard two sounds and he heard the blood pumping in his head. Um, normally when you hear that when we're exercising hard, but you can in this space. And he heard a high-pitched sound, which is generally thought to be random firings on the auditory nerves, the, the connections from the inner ear up to the brain. But again, in a space like this, you start hearing internal sounds as well. This is an unusually quiet anechoic chamber because we test people's hearing in here, so we have to have it below the threshold of hearing. And what sort of research would you use this space for? What sort of projects have you done in the chamber? Basically, you have two two things you might do in here. But first of all, all our test chambers are about isolating from the outside world. So if I measured, say, a loudspeaker and I put it in a normal room, I get the loudspeaker sound plus all the reflections from the wall. So I can't separate the loudspeaker from the room. If I bring it in here, there's no wall reflections. So I get just the loudspeaker. So you use it to, to sort of isolate things. So all our space is about isolating and getting away from the effect of a room. Um, and also isolated from outside, from, from the outside world as well. I mean, what's in here at the moment, I can show you the measurement rig at the moment. That's a robot over there. Okay. And you'd strap a loudspeaker to that, and the loudspeaker would be rotated around so you could see how the sound varies from different angles of the loudspeaker. And behind, uh, behind the producer is a, a little microphone. Ah. So you pick up the sound on that little microphone. And so where you might use this, say you're putting a, a loudspeaker into a gig or a festival you need to know how it, how it radiates sounds in different directions so you can make sure you cover the audience so some people don't get a quiet sound some people get a loud sound how do you measure it you need to measure the loudspeaker at lots of angles and that's this is the sort of place you do it is there anything you've ever listened to in here that you've been that surprised you i years ago broke the world record for the longest echo in a room and it was a big oil tank up in scotland so i literally went and made a big bang with a, a starting pistol and so it went boom and when it goes off it, it lasts oh it lasted sort of like 60 70 seconds it goes on for ages in there but in here when you do it it goes click and you realize when you listen to a gun on you know hollywood movies it's all effect the actual gun itself is quite relatively quiet it's all the room that gives it the boom in a gun so if i clap That's weird. How bizarre is that? They, like, it's a really interesting space. Welcome to the listening room. It's the kind of size of a large office, I guess, or maybe a large kitchen, but it's all around you'll see these wooden slatted things which are just behind us you'll see these boxes you see lots of loudspeakers up in the ceiling because in here we reproduce sound for people to listen back to hence why it's called a listening room so we have lots of treatment in here lots of loudspeaker systems to allow us to simulate the sound of wind farms or the sounds of i don't know the sound of a football match or whatever we're trying to test i do feel like i'm in some sort of art installation if it had orange walls i think it would really fit into the 70s vibe definitely but what makes acoustics fascinating to me and why one of the reasons I got into it is it's not just the physics, which is my original training. It's also the psychology. You know, it, I can model how sound bounces around this room using my sort of computer, my physics equations. But the, one of the difficult things is knowing what happens when it goes through the ears and the brain starts processing it. And of course, the brain is an immensely complicated thing we don't really fully understand. And that's why listening is so important. 
as part of acoustics because ultimately if I design a concert hall or a, a quieter washing machine or a new hearing aid it's a human who says that works that doesn't so unless you spend a lot of time testing humans you don't really know whether things work or not. Yeah I was going to ask you about that because can everyone else hear the world in the same way that I can and and how do you deal with that when it comes to designing something as personal as sound? I guess what if you looked at some of the research I do it, it kind of looks like experimental psychology let's say we were comparing uh say uh different processes on hearing aids we might have a whole series of sound samples we've got speech you've got noise and can you pick the speech out or not and people will be sitting here listening to sentences and writing down what they could hear because hearing is very individual particularly if you've got hearing loss people talk about hearing loss as being one thing but actually it's really varied depending on how it's caused and also what the severity of it is and so, yeah, in the end, you do lots. It's, it's like experimenting on anything, but you've got to test lots of humans because they're not homogeneous. They're heterogeneous. It's one of those things that I sometimes think I look around the world and I think, well, I think I know what this sound sounds like or I think I know what this colour is. And then I have to realise that maybe maybe it looks different or sounds slightly different to someone else. Maybe they can hear a slightly different frequency within that noise. It's interesting in acoustic engineering because often we, we sort of design to the average person and unfortunately leave behind the people who have different, you know, different behaviour. But there are areas where we do know about difference. So my original area of research was concert hall acoustics, how to design a concert hall which sounds good with an orchestra. And we know people divide basically into two groups. So one group of people like lots of reverberations. So that's what you get in a cathedral. You go in the room, you a booming kind of sound, and it's a bit muddy and wet, but it, it's got that real power to it. And there's other people who prefer, if I say, a CD sound, something really clear, you can really pick the details out. And actually in those experiments, we can actually see people divide into groups. That's probably one of the more easy examples. When we get to more complicated perception, involving all sorts of other things like memories and stuff like that, it gets really difficult to unpick. So individual response can be incredibly important to acoustics. You know, you've got some really weird sort of responses to sound. I think of things like ASMR, you know, those sort of weird videos where people are whispering into microphones. And I mean, it doesn't do anything for me, but, you know, some people find this very euphoric listening to these. Or very relaxing Or very relaxing. Some people find it a bit weird. <laughs> That's my personal opinion. Uh, or misophonia, where people you know, can't stand the, the sound of particular people chomping on food. So, that, you know, and that's just two examples, but you could all have things like something we might deal with is low-frequency noise. So you have this problem where you get, I don't know, a, a, an industrial process creating some very low hum, which carries through the city, and you might be in your building and you're listening to it, and it's keeping you awake at night, so it's a problem. But then you find some people can hear it and some people can't because just simple, you know, how sensitive you are to that frequency varies. And what would you say was kind of the most rewarding thing you've ever worked on? Oh, it's, it's, When you got to my stage, it's hard to pick out one example. But I think we're sat in this listening room here and I can point at things in this room that I've designed which are actually products that are actually used around the world in places. So I think, like all engineers, there's a sort of tangible, I made something, I can see it being used. So there's that side of the engineer, which is the sort of practical engineering. But I'm also an academic, and what an academic engineer does is also science, really. So I can point at things that I've done which have generated new scientific knowledge. They're never going to be a product, but that discovery of something new about the world... Uh, I don't know what would be a good example, but I mean, I recently built a 1 to 12 scale model of Stonehenge 
to actually find out what the acoustics of Stonehenge were in the past. And, you know, that's discovering, that's never going to be made into a product, but it was just fascinating to sort of kind of reveal what it was like back in 2200 BC and then think about what does that mean for rituals that might have taken place in the space. So there's also, I think I'd be very proud of some of those scientific discoveries and the scientific papers, as well as just the products I might have worked on. And have you ever had a project where you feel like either like, wow, this is something that no one else has ever thought of, or this is the first time this thing's been done, or a particular project that kind of just has that like sparkle to it? You know, you, you kind of go like, drift through it and you're like wow this is incredible like I feel like we are either making a massive difference or we're doing something that no one's done before lots of cases because you know a lot a lot of my funding for research comes from bidding for money and unless you can say this is ambitious novel breaking new ground it doesn't get funded so I'd say all projects have that element to it um but lots of things we did a project which actually was in this listening room where we had this idea that if you want to get people to get a sense of being surrounded by sound, which you get in a cinema, but you want to do it in the home, you can't get people to go and buy really expensive home cinema systems. People don't. Um, and so in a, in a lab, you can have these really complicated big loudspeaker systems. Under, you're sit un, sat under about 120-odd loudspeakers here, which would surround you in sound, but that's not a home solution. So in here, they, they, and actually over at the BBC and Media City, they trialled this idea of, well, everyone's got lots of loudspeakers at home, mobiles, tablets, Bluetooth loudspeakers. Let's just plug those in and scatter them around the room and create a surround sound experience out of what people had. And that was quite revealing. That sort of, it, we called it media device orchestration, because you actually you could get a really good sense, even though you think mobile phone, it's going to sound awful. But actually the important thing was a sense of the sound came from behind. And then it gets into you know, what's important for the story. So if you're telling a radio drama, let's say it's horror, someone creeping up from behind is going to give you a sense of, oh, what's going on? It doesn't really matter if it's not quite right, as long as you, you believe that it is someone creeping up. And you get back into that sort of issue of how do you, what do people believe or not believe is plausible and everything. Because I think so often people look at science and research and things and they kind of feel like everything's being discovered. And I think one of those big realisations, particularly to young people, can be that actually, yes, they might go into a classroom and be taught from books that say a very specific thing. But actually, past a certain point, the world of like science and research is a very different place. And it's it's much there's much more about, you know, discovering new things and trying different things out. But I think when we get taught science at school, which is what most people study if they go on to engineering, you know, you get, you learn Hooke's Law, you know, how springs behave. And of course, there was one or two people working on it, not very many. But now, fields are much more mature. And so what you're seeing is teams working on it around the world. So it's unlikely that one individual comes up with an idea that is completely earth shattering. What you've got is lots of people working together to create that earth shattering idea and each individually contributing to that sort of kind of problem. So it's all about teamwork. So if I take a project like the hearing aid projects we've got going on at the moment. So we've got on that project, we've got people like me who comes from acoustics, psychologists, hearing experts, hearing aid experts, speech technology experts, 
So that's five different disciplines to, to try and improve hearing aids. And you can't nowadays, because we're not inventing hearing aids from scratch, you can't improve it from just one discipline perspective. So you have this, you always have teams working on these big projects because you need those different perspectives for it to work. Well, what's unusual about the, the two hearing aid projects I've got, um, one's about speech and one's about music, is that rather than us do the research we actually set up challenges for other people to do the research. So it's a bit like you get you challenge kids to invent something. Um, for us, what we do is we, we give people, say, let's say we're dealing with speech over a hearing aid. We give them lots of examples of speech audio recordings with noise in the background at different levels of speech and noise, different speakers. And we challenge groups from around the world to say, well, make them better so some, this person with this hearing loss can hear them better. So they're making the processor in the hearing aid. And what's interesting, if you do research that way, you get lots of groups bringing lots of different approaches, which I, I guess, again, with your kids invent stuff, you get lots of different ideas by out farming the come up with an idea. Um, so we get many more ideas than we can dream up ourselves with many, many different approaches. And the idea there is to build a community to have lots of people who know more about hearing loss. So when we get the next generation of Alexa or Siri, it works better for people with a hearing loss. I definitely think that's another reason for diversity within things like engineering. Because if you have a diverse group of people around the table, then they're more likely to problem solve in a better way. And it's very important to have that user perspective. So when we have a meeting, we, we try and get in someone with a hearing loss to talk about what it's like from their practical basis. Everyone's experiences are valid. You know, coming back to your hearing test, you want as many people as possible to be doing those and hearing the those things because that's how you find out even what the average is if you don't have enough mm. people doing those you only have either one or two persons kind of experience of that and i think it's particularly important with this growth of machine learning this idea you get computer to learn what's going on because they're learning from data and if your data is flawed then what it learns is flawed and an example in speech would be you know uh, speech recognition systems which have a gender bias which work better for men than work for women and it's interesting that there's a tendency with technology firms to produce something and put it out there quick and then try and fix those problems and I think they need to be thinking much more upstream about trying to make it work for a more diverse audience. Definitely. So out of the projects that you've done the variety of different things what would you think is the most challenging project and I mean every single like project at different points has challenges but has there ever been something where you've got to that point you're like I could so easily give up on it and did you give up or did you like find a way through that I think one of the advantages of working in engineering research is there's normally some way you can twist it to still do something valuable even when you come up against a sort of brick wall you know you get to something you thought might work as an idea and it doesn't and therefore you can sort of twist it and look at something else. Um, so I don't think it's, I can't think of a project where I would say at the end of it, where we failed uh, completely to achieve anything. Um, so science often will look at something without the kind of outside factors, without the real world around it. Whereas when it comes to engineering, you're making things that physically people are going to wear or you're testing appliances that are out there in the real world. Like, how do you find that mix of taking something that maybe is designed without constraints and having to put constraints on it? I don't know if I feel that I'm working within constraints, really, because 
if you talk to an artist and talk about doing something creative, constraints is often what drives innovation. So I think from an engineering point of view, actually putting constraints on it is often where the ingenuity and the creativity comes in because you're trying to come up with a solution where it's got to be, it's got to work, maybe it's got to be cheaper or maybe it's got to work, it's got to be lighter or something. So that to me is where a lot of the creativity is in engineering, is working within those constraints. But I think it's also true of art. I don't think it's... You know, I don't think it's just an engineering thing. I'm sure with the hearing aid work that you're doing, if you had an infinite amount of space, if a person could carry with them all of these things, then suddenly that would become a much easier problem to solve, right? It'd be easier, but you'd still... Fundamentally, the problem we have with hearing aids is you've still got to go through the hearing system of the person with the hearing loss. So if we take a typical hearing loss, which is like age-related hearing loss, then the inner ear is is got problems with the with the hair cells and you still got to play the sound through those hair cells and convert the stuff into electricity um and so therefore you can't exactly reproduce you can't replace what they would hear many years ago it's different to to vision so if i you know i'm very short-sighted always have been when i put my contact lenses in the morning i have vision which is basically because they've refocused the stuff on my retina it's as good as it can be and it's brilliant i have 20 20 vision with my hearing if i put a hearing aid on i will not get the equivalent of 20 20 vision and the problem is you still can't hear the quiet stuff so you can't just make everything louder because then the loud stuff gets too loud so you have to compress it into a smaller dynamic range so you have to get the quiet stuff louder but not make the loud stuff too loud and that's the reason people with hearing loss struggle in say the pub it's because the, the hubbub of the pub is a similar level and you find it hard to pick out the speaker. So it's, you can't get back to the hearing you used to have. Yeah, I've not got a hearing aid, but I have in-ear like ear protectors that are then supposed to enhance the speaking. And actually, I'm not a massive fan of them. I've gone back to using my old ones because it's a very weird experience of hearing nothing and then hearing this like boosted speech currently i'm i'm really hopeful that the hearing aid projects might make a difference but it's not going to be something you're going to find in your hearing aid tomorrow when you go and buy one i mean the time from research to actual making a difference is typically 10 years so you know research takes a long time to get into into actual products but i would hope in 10 years time that hearing aids will have some technology that i've helped enable I mean, the funny thing about these hearing aid projects, because running these competitions, I probably won't have developed the processing, but I've been a member of the team that maybe has got someone into hearing loss and they've applied an algorithm which has made a better hearing aid, and that, to me, is success. It's, it's, an, it's an example, again, of that, you know, engineering isn't about the individual. It's not about Newton coming up with something, having had an apple drop on his head or whatever. It's mostly about teams coming up with stuff. So you individually don't necessarily can say that's my thing but you can definitely say I helped make that thing work amongst the team Inventive We'll come back to the conversation with Ruth later but it's time to hear the story. It's written by Stephen Cox, author of Our Child of the Stars and Our Child of Two Worlds. I now know what previous inventive guests felt like waiting to hear their story The Magic Flute by Stephen Cox the phone rang. Cam Summers shared the tiny room with two other postgrads. Since the head of the team had done that cheery local TV slot, there had been plenty of external calls about the project. 
Some of them were even useful. She picked up, frowning. Cam Summers, can I help? Yes, this is Margaret Pearson. I understand that you're doing some sort of study. I can't hear the flute. The voice tells you a lot. A woman, an old woman, brisk and southern, and from one of those schools. Yes, we're trying to improve music heard through hearing aids, Cam said. Your help would be great. You'll need to listen to some music for us. Oh, don't tell me I have to download something. No, we send a machine, ready to go. It's all you need, and very easy. Where do you live? The caller named a street of those big Victorian houses. It was a good bike ride, a workout. I could drop it off, Cam said. Very well. I can't hear the flute at all. I can't hear the solo in Die Zauberflitter. And it ruins K313, of course. OK. Cam supposed these were classical pieces, and she was annoyed not to get the references. Well, as people get older, they lose the higher frequencies first. You know what I mean by frequency. The woman laughed, even as Cam realised she probably did know. Higher notes. I am a singer, Miss Summers. Or is it doctor? Cam's fine. Every note is a mixture, so losing those frequencies affects every instrument, but the high ones most. The flute will be muted more than the double bass. Well, I fiddled with the mixer on the CD, and it doesn't help. Most music sounds dreadful anyway, but I can't hear the flute at all. That sounded odd. Cam had promised to blog about the project. Maybe a singer who couldn't hear the flute was a hook. Cam on a bike took no prisoners. She did the run at speed, took the hill at pace, and had only a moderately alarming encounter with a green lorry. Horns, shouting, a low aircraft. By the time she pulled up her bike outside the imposing three-storey pile, puffing just a little, the departmental chat had answered her questions. An acoustics department is full of musicians, and the head of department enjoyed telling her. Die Zauberflöte was the opera, the magic flute. Mozart's fable about enlightenment versus superstition, in which the Queen of the Night has a famous aria that trills, staccato, with a gullet-splitting F6. It might be one of those pieces Cam had heard without knowing what it was. K313 was also Mozart, another flute concerto. M. Pearson was doorbell one, ground. She was tall, with an elegant scarf and practical trousers. Age had honed her, and she took charge as she had on the phone. If she had a reaction to Cam's 5'11 height, cherry red DMs and dreads, she hid it very well. Call me Margaret. Ophelia usually helps me with the computer. Of course, email is certainly a blessing. I'll set it up. Doing the whole thing is three hours, but you'll need to break it into 20-minute chunks. You'll get tired. I have time. It sounded like a philosophy of life. Margaret walked with a stick, a little carefully. The back of the ground floor was a long room, with French windows looking onto a small garden with two bird feeders. A piano, a high-end stereo and a long shelf unit of books and CDs. Photographs, paintings, 
A small table held everything to make hot drinks. Cam got the laptop and the other equipment out of the yellow rucksack. She took care to get it right, while Margaret filled the cafetiere and read the paperwork. So why can't hearing aids deal with music? As an engineer, Cam knew that all life was trade-off. Her first-year lecturer said, A scientist will make it perfect. Make it out of gold, or make it ten miles across, or give it infinite runtime. Engineers do the best we can, within constraints. Cam explained, Well, a hearing aid has to be small and not delay the sound. It must contain a battery and a tiny computer tunes it to your ears, like a mixer. Margaret had turned on a sidelight and she sat like someone who lip-read. If it takes too long processing, what you hear will be out of sync with the lips. People hate that. Indeed, I bought one of those specialised ones, sheer robbery, and it still doesn't seem to work. The colour, the vigour is gone, and I can't pick out the words. We're trying new tech to make it better, Cam said. When I get back, I'll send some additional test samples. The magic flute and that concerto. We've got a piccolo track somewhere. You get to try to make those sound better. Margaret coughed, sat even straighter. She hummed a piece and said, Pamina's aria, one of my party pieces for some years. I never managed the Queen of the Night part. I didn't have the range. As Cam was preparing to leave, Margaret showed her one of the big photographs. A clump of musicians in evening dress. Margaret, in her forties perhaps, in the middle, elegant in a dark blue gown with dramatic ivory trim. Beside her, a handsome man with the violin. He was in other pictures too. It was no surprise when Margaret pointed and said, Alan, my husband. Twelve years gone. It wasn't said with any drama. Cam's grandfather had died ten years back. She could tell when Gran was missing him, although most times no words were said. Now, with Margaret's words, Cam felt she stood on the edge of a great sea, which sang an unknown song. Cam was busy for the next few days. At the end of the third day, she got a message. Margaret Pearson called. She said to say that it didn't work at all, and she still didn't hear the flute. Cam had a hot date with an astrophysicist, and she wasn't going to miss it. The next day was crowded, but brought an email. Dear Cam, when you have a moment, can we look into the flute, please? I found the project rather frustrating. It didn't work. Kind regards, Margaret. The point of the project was machine learning. The AI would gradually learn how to please the human ear. It wasn't for Cam to come up with any sort of diagnosis. Yet this was intriguing. Margaret's responses were already uploaded to the cloud. Cam looked at the results for these two pieces and the piccolo, then compared them with the results from the previous tests. It made no sense. Margaret heard the shrill piccolo better than the lower notes of the flute. Margaret couldn't hear the flute parts whatever she did. Well, that's weird, was the starting point of most discoveries. Cam thought of possible explanations. 
It was a problem with the test device, or the software. Human error by Margaret, some specific issue with the samples. She must dig up more flutes and piccolo music, and controls. Cam emailed Margaret. Hi Margaret, thank you for your results and I appreciate your time. It's a puzzle. We're looking into this some more and if you can stand it, some more tests on different sounds. Hang on to our laptop. Frustrating for you, but I'll work on it. Cam needed trial pieces of the same frequencies as a flute, but not a flute. Her first thought was to slow down the piccolo. Or she could sample the instruments, chop the sounds up and mash them together differently. Cam went down a rabbit hole of enthusiasm, just like ten-year-old Cam trying to hear satellites. Cam found pieces from Andean panpipes, a clear, high Japanese shinobue, and children playing the recorder. She found six people to listen to her new pieces, including Beth, the hot astrophysicist, who had a cochlear implant. Cam probably over-engineered it, for sure she did. The flute mash track Beth called Dalek Space Flutes might be worth using in her band. Through a hearing aid simulator, no surprise, none of the six listeners heard the piccolo better than the flute. Cam would now try them on Margaret. Cam had had to chase Margaret, who then took two days to reply. Now Cam was in a summer shower, bike hissing through the rain, coming to a screech outside the tall house. She took some deep breaths, locked the bike and rang the bell. All Margaret had said was, can you collect the laptop this afternoon? Margaret opened the door. I'm sorry, I think I have wasted your time. Oh, I doubt it. Cam took extra care drying her boots and they went to the back. Margaret waved at the loaned laptop. I don't think there's any mystery. Your samples were ingenious. I enjoyed the caterwauling one in a perverse sort of way. So, what is it? Ophelia thinks it was the stroke five months ago. A tiny little stroke, barely worth calling it something so dramatic. I don't believe that for a minute. You didn't test all the pieces? I didn't have to. The folk music was instructive. I could just about make out the flute line, and then I experimented. I'm having problems with those two specific pieces. So it's not the hearing aids at all. Was that it? Why? A faint tremor of the lip, an odd note in the voice. Margaret was upset. So... Cam left a long silence for Margaret to fill. Margaret was happy not to. Far above, someone was using a vacuum cleaner. Cam said gently, It would be good to know, if you can tell me. I won't tell anyone if you don't want. It's very personal, but at my age, my brain is going. I might need to talk to the doctor about it. Another long pause. The children were teens, the usual storms. My career took off again. Alan, my husband, well, it was a difficult patch. 
He had the decency to keep his wanderings brief, his sideshows, and end them the moment I guessed. He was on his final warning. I thought I could never err, that I could control myself. Life kicks your feet out from under you sometimes. She reached a framed photograph out of a drawer. Margaret dressed to perform, a smiling, curly-haired man with a flute, an informal pose, like a party shot. Only context provided the clue. We did the magic flute, she said. Well, Mark flew me to the stars, Cam. He was an extraordinary player. His touch could stop my voice. A telephone call could make my heart pound. I had thought I knew how strong love could be. We lived exalted, in a sort of operatic drama. It was infatuation, really. Love is far more than hormones. Margaret had produced a small handkerchief from her sleeve. Well, in the end, he was a selfish brute. He lied. He was impossible about my children. And it had never made sense. I went back to my husband. My big mistake moved away. And Alan and I rebuilt our lives. Cam had to ask to complete the circle. And the music? The opera where we connected... His triumph with K313 were important to me. I found out a few weeks ago that he died from his ex-wife. I never even knew he was ill. I played them for the first time in years. But I can't hear his parts. She sniffed, but her eyes were dry. I expect you'll want to stick me in one of those MRI things and look for the hole in my brain. Those machines feel like a coffin. Well, I, I don't know. I'll talk to my supervisor. I won't talk about... you know. It's interesting work you do. Bringing people back their music. Quite magical. Cam thought... It really was. Her supervisor listened to Cam, occasionally throwing in a question or muttering approval when she described her special test sounds. Cam just said that the classical pieces had personal meaning. She'd read somewhere, Wikipedia probably, that in the opera, the flute had the power to turn sorrow into joy. Not here it didn't. Well, fascinating he said. I can't remember if there's anything in the literature. Let's look. Would she be up for further involvement? Talk to her clinical team? Cam shrugged. I'll ask, but I don't think so. That's the tremendous thing about sound. You think hearing is all waveforms and algorithms, but it's also perception, neuroscience. You run into something really complicated. The human mind. The oddest mixer of them all.
Should we go to the back to my office? Or we just take a shortcut? Come on in. The Inventive Podcast. Mixing engineering fact and fiction. Like all of the guests on the podcast, you've had a story inspired by your work, but yours is a little bit different because it's actually been written by your brother. So not only do you have a really interesting story that you've inspired, but also it was written by someone close to you. Yeah, I'm very lucky to have a brother who's a who's a published author. And um, I suppose what was really worrying was I'd he would turn around and tell me that I didn't have an interesting life and nothing, nothing I do would inspire him to write anything worthwhile. And what's interesting is a writer, he's a scientist, you see. So he studied physics. And it comes through in his writing as well that he's, he's not only a great writer, but he really cares about the science. And the way he approaches things is an interesting mixture of sort of from the art side and from the science side. I thought it was a really interesting story. It had me gripped from kind of the first few paragraphs in. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. It's a really interesting thing about, you know, she couldn't hear the flute. Is that... Is that true? How did that work? I had, a, I had a, a discussed it with Steve and we actually talked about, did it matter if it was true or not? You know, is that a real condition? Is that something that, you know, is artistic license? But I, I think I would say that we, if someone came around and said this was a condition, I wouldn't be surprised because there's some really weird things that happen with hearing. And, you know, I'd say never would say never with the brain and what it does fascinating because I started thinking like if if someone actually had that you know you hear of these things happening to people once you know certain things have happened in their lives that have then affected you know the psychology of it yeah I just think of some of the really weird reactions or maybe weird is the wrong word but strange reactions to sound I mean one some of the most moving ones if you watch some of the videos of um, people with Alzheimer's or, or dementia who who are completely kind of frozen not moving uh, unresponsive and you put music to them and they suddenly just come alive and it, it is like transformative I mean certainly hearing is quite strange in certain ways and we have strange responses I guess if you read any of Oliver Sacks stuff and read about you know people have mu- musical hallucinations for example you know they're hearing full-bodied music going on in their head which is not real it's it's real to them but it's not actually being created by outside sources so certainly people can have very peculiar hearing responses even simple things like i could play a piece of music that will get the hair standing on the back of my neck and get that sort of euphoria and you might just go oh that's that doesn't mean much to me you know and you'll feel flat so we do have very different sort of responses to sound but yeah the conversation was could this effect that steve has in the story be true i don't know if i've met it but i would never say never with how the brain operates you never know there could be someone who has that effect so, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if it, if it was true, but I don't know. I haven't seen the scientific paper on it. Yeah, this was the thing that fascinated me reading the story was the fact that it felt like if I read a case of that, I wouldn't be surprised. But also, I don't know, I think of some of the things that I've come across where people you know, see things differently or they respond to the world around them in a different way. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about when you're doing research that involves humans is we are this amazing machine. We have, you know, this brain that's kind of a computer, but it's it's something more than that. There's something really magical about how human beings interact with the world. Um, And seeing... You know, having those experiences, you know, going into different environments, hearing things differently, seeing things differently, you can start to to 
I mean, going back to Stonehenge, you can start to see how people would think of that space as being a really kind of sacred and magical space just because of the acoustics. I think that's true a lot with sound, that there's a sort... Because it's invisible, you have this sense that people, you know, assume sort of magical effects to it. I can think of a few few examples. I mean, one of which comes to mind is people kind of think that sound is really powerful. And that's because I can put a piece of music on and I can be, you know, I can make you know, go really sad or really euphoric, depending on what the music is. But physically, it's an incredibly weak force. So if you look at how, you know, really quiet sound, it is moving your eardrum by less than the diameter of a hydrogen atom. It is not a big thing, but we have a big emotional response to it. So there's a kind of sense that that sound is a powerful thing, but actually, no, compared to lots of forces in the world, it is actually really, really weak. Um, So there's lots of things that I think misunderstandings around sound arise. Yeah, so do you want to answer any of the normal questions that we would have on the podcast? I haven't really thought about any answers here, which well, is quite good, funny. Because that's that's good. We like that bit of, you know, we can go through them. Don't worry, it's edited, you know, this is not going to go out live. <laughs> <laughs> so, quotes. <laughs> it's like a tick list. <laughs> I'm just I'm laughing about the quote because we obviously asked you and various yeah, other people. Is, it's very surreal, kind of obviously being involved in previous episodes, listening back to lots of previous episodes, and be like, oh yeah. And but it's also funny because I I don't really live by quotes really. Particularly. But you've asked every single person on this podcast, is there a particular quote that means something or that you know you live by? And you're like, well, actually, no, <laughs> I don't do that. I, I kind of have a general rule: if you see a quote on the internet by Einstein, it wasn't by Einstein. That would be my quote to live by. But actually the quote which came to mind is a duck's quack doesn't echo and no one knows the reason why which is a sort of urban myth that has been around that i got involved in debunking duck's quacks echo like anything else does so we thought okay we're going to get a duck in so we went around the chambers you've been in with a duck recording the duck in various places and demonstrating (laughs) yeah daisy was happy enough we fed it and kept it happy and the, the, the thing I didn't realise is, of course, weird picture, weird sound. It's a, it was a worldwide news story as soon as we put it out there. Um, so it was, it was my first introduction to sort of kind of mass media stuff, um, completely un, unexpected. Because science communication is obviously something that you've, you've done a lot of that you're passionate about. Yeah, I've always been involved in public engagement, this idea that scientists should talk to the public and, and engage in conversations about what they do. If you look at my uh, my you know history of research most of it has been funded by the taxpayer in some way or other so you you should know what i'm doing so i should be talking to people in the public about what i'm doing so you have to find all they want is to know if a duck's quite geckos or not don't they absolutely and and uh getting the daily mail saying what a waste of money taxpayers money which is what i appeared (laughs) in it was one friday afternoon it was one duck it wasn't a lot of work yeah and i think that's important thing about you know science and engineering is playing is an important part of it so you you kind of think well what did we learn from doing the duck and how has that made hearing aids better it probably hasn't but that sense of play and playing you know doing things with your colleague which is fun is actually something that then builds up that sort of kind of creative mindset to do other things I think as well those conversations that those things generate are just as valuable so people at home reading about that having conversations around the kitchen table about research or science and engineering and I think sometimes the effect a piece of science communication has is not what you think it is it's not necessarily just that physical we watched this demo we did this it's 
you know a young person being like oh this is really interesting like how do I you know and, and you can't always tell what effect what impact that has because quite often it's not impact that happens either straight away or it's not as you would expect you know I'm sure duck sales did not saw people were like oh, I want to own a duck yeah and it's also I think it's repeated exposure if you look at anything in advertising it's unlikely to be one epiphany it's likely to be they've repeatedly been exposed to something that's always what I'm thinking when I go and do my work or you know if someone's seen you the Guinness World Record for you know the longest reverberation or something that's one of those kind of 15 experiences for them I say I'm not sure I'd heard about the ducks quack. I've heard the one about a tree falling. If no one's around, does it make a sound? That one. I think that's an interesting one because I think there's a right answer. The duck quack one is just someone has made that up at some point and it's, and it's wrong and it's just got repeated because it has that sort of sense it should be right. Um, but the tree one's interesting because it depends what you think sound is. So if the tree falls over and you think sound is a physical thing, then yes, sound is made, whether someone's there to witness it or not. But if you think, if you look at a dictionary definition of sound and it needs someone to perceive it, and that's one of the dictionary definitions, then it doesn't make sound because no one actually witnessed it. So take your pick. <laughs> um, so, OK, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? I don't know if I'd want a superpower. I think there's powers that I would quite like. So I play the saxophone. And I'd really love to be able to noodle along with jazz really well. So one of the things I did during lockdown was to try and teach myself to improvise. So if you could give me the power to get up on stage, I don't know, go to Ronnie Scott's and do a really good solo, that would, that would satisfy me. I think the funny thing about acoustics is it, actually you'll find most members of staff here are frustrated musicians in one sense and the other. <laughs> um, some still play in bands regularly, but we all were, nearly all of us were musicians or are still musicians. Do you have, like a thing you want to do like that big project that's like oh if I had all the resources what would it be your face is lighting up I love this <laughs> yeah I, I think it's I mean, it's, it's a cliche it's time really I just have so many things going on I just struggle with time and I think within that I'd like to write a third book um and so I've always been into communicating science and I've just really enjoyed talking to the general public about acoustics and sound this whole morning has been so fascinating so thank you for giving up your time and for allowing the roles to be reversed to actually I think it's really interesting having someone who's been on all these journeys with all these engineers who is actually an engineer themselves and it's nice to have the tables turned and hear a little bit more about your work and what you do um so thank you and thank you for your time and your hospitality well it's, it's been great to show you around um, and uh, we're lucky to have some really curious places here so it was great to show you around the anechoic and the reverberation rooms a big thank you to ruth amos for doing the interview it was great to meet her face to face rather than via zoom the producers of inventive were anna scott brown and adam fowler the music was composed and performed by brendan williams animations were by annabeth robinson multi-platform and social media content was directed by jill davis thanks to my bro stephen cox for the great story and to vita fox for reading it we'd love to hear your thoughts about the fact the fiction and the mixture of the two let us know at www.inventedpodcast.com or get us on all the usual socials the Inventive Podcast is from the University of Salford. It's funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council and the podcast is an overtone production. So it's goodbye from me, acoustical engineer, Trevor Cox. Inventive. 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 Inventive.